Welcome to episode number 34 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, an inside view of the scandal-plagued 2019 Women's World Gliding Championships at Lake Keep It Australia. We talk to the contest director and get her take on what actually happened. And gliding from Switzerland to the UK, I speak with an adventurous Swiss pilot about his epic adventure. And we hear from a pilot who's flying this year's two-seater championships in the United Kingdom, where the onus is on having fun. That's all on episode number 34 of The Thermal. On episode number 33 of The Thermal, we heard from Jenny Thompson. She was in the Australian team at the 2019 Women's World Gliding Championships that were held at Lake Keep It Australia. These world championships were mired in controversy after the Australian team was caught using live tracking data. And as a result, the Australian team was disqualified from the contest. Jenny passionately told us what happened from her point of view and was adamant that she and her team didn't cheat. Mandy Temple has a different point of view. She was the contest director at this controversial contest. I've reached Mandy at her home in Adelaide, South Australia. Hello, Mandy. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Uh, no worries. Here I am, ready to go. So, taking me back to 2019, you're the contest director at the Women's World Gliding Championships at Lake Keempit. What happened? What was this scandal, this controversy? What happened from your point of view? It's interesting, isn't it, looking back? I mean, at the time, the biggest worry that we had was the smoke. Mm, yeah, because we were, had the bushfires. Right. Yeah. There was a big and international I, story. I mean, Australia yeah. was on fire. Yeah. I even had one of the teams call me from um, Sydney Airport and say, how many fire extinguishers do we need to buy so that we're safe when we drive to the airport? Because they were so worried about the fires. I mean, it really was a big issue. Mm -hmm. And so this, this issue that came up, at the very end of the competition, where the Australians had been um, using extra data that the other teams hadn't had access to, that just came completely out of left field because we had been so focused on trying to make the competition successful with the smoke, um, that wasn't even on our radar. It was just um, something that just caught us completely unawares and was completely unexpected. So, so back this up. I mean, this is all about having live tracking, access to it, so that teams can possibly get a tactical advantage. What, as contest director, how did you address this uh, during the contest? Yeah, we, we thought we'd put that to bed because um, uh, I guess for the benefit of people that don't know much about World Championships, you have um, a bunch of team captains who represent the pilots. So each day you have a daily briefing where you tell the pilots about the competition and that's for everyone, but also... Um, for the administration things, such as the opening ceremony, how to pay your accounts, how to pay your bills, you deal with a smaller group of perhaps 12 or 14 people who mm -hmm. are the team captains. Mm -hmm. And I say that to set the scene for the first team captains meeting, which is held before the competition starts. So before any competition race is held, we have a meeting and we go through any issues, you know, are the tugs going to fly fast enough? What are you going to do about the smoke? And at that meeting, we talk specifically about the tracking because there's the the free-to-air tracking, if you like, which is freely available to everyone. But then there's also the trackers that are provided by the organization. Mm -hmm. And that's that's something that's encouraged by the IGC so that people around the world can watch the race as it's unfolding. Um, that's the purpose of the trackers. It's for publicity. And it was very successful. We had thousands of people every day watching the tracking. But there's a delay um, but on that. 
Well, recognising that it could be a tactical advantage if the teams had access to it, yes, the IGC mandated a 15-minute delay, and that was in the rules. Mm -hmm. But um, because of the smoke, some of the team captains were anxious to have access to that live tracking information. So at the first team captains meeting, we had quite a, a robust discussion, shall we say, quite a long, lengthy discussion about whether or not they could have access. And, of course, we have the, the rules of the competition. But in addition to that, we have, if you like, an organic rule. We have a, a steward. Um, and at our competition, we were lucky enough to have Frauke, who's one of the most experienced stewards. From and the Netherlands. Any From the Netherlands, yes, exactly. And she's also um, VP of, of IGC. So mm -hmm. she's well, well credentialed. Um, and and her role is to interpret the rules because, of course, the written word can never be absolute. And I think you always need some interpretation. And so um, I spoke at the meeting and said, no, I, I felt that under the rules, the teams couldn't have access to the live tracking. And, and you're the contest director. So what the contest director says is what's what the <laughs> that's the, the rule in well, place. Well, right? yeah. Yeah, there's actually a specific rule um, in Annex A, which is our Bible of the rules. Um, that there's a rule there that says that any anything said at any briefing becomes a rule. Um, so yes, so and then and then Frauke spoke as well in support of what I had said and said, look, that the trackers are there for publicity. The IGC wants to promote gliding. That's one of the objectives of the championship. So we must fly with the trackers. It's a requirement that you use them, but we also require the delay so that they're purely for publicity and not for tactical advantage and it was a you know it was a clear discussion I'd, I'd put that to bed I gave it no further thought because we'd had a good discussion about it and then what happened um well as I say I really didn't think about it but it was raised again two if not three more times because of the smoke the team captains were really worried about knowing where their pilots were at different times and that and would I be for a safety thing not a tactical advantage sure sure yeah yeah, and, and we, I reiterated, no, look, we've talked about this, put it to bed, we've had advice from the IGC, the 15-minute delay stays, the teams cannot have access to live tracking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And but, that's why it was so, yeah. But oh, go. Uh, the Australian team did, or the, the coach anyway, or the some team members uh, n did access somehow that information, that live tracking. Yeah, it, it's odd, isn't it? I mean, and, I listened to Jenny's interview. And and let me goes, just ask, that, that's not in dispute, right? Nobody disputes that that was accessed. Exactly, yes. Okay. They were bragging about it at the end. At the end, it was, it was something they were proud of. They thought they were clever. But, um, yeah, I mean, I listened to Jenny's interview um, in the previous podcast, and it seems pretty clear that the women, or certainly Jenny, don't – they either don't acknowledge that it was discussed or they don't believe that it was discussed because, mm -hmm. you know, that they feel hard done by, they feel that there was an injustice and an injustice is so powerful it gets very emotional, doesn't it? But it, that can only be the case if they didn't know mm -hmm. that, that that discussion had taken place. So whether they didn't believe it or whether they weren't told about it, I, I'm not certain how that happened. I can't know how that happened. But I do know that every team captain and presumably all of the other pilots knew that that issue had been discussed discussed mm -hmm. um, and, and the decision had been made. So what you're kind of suggesting is that the, the people running the team, not the pilots themselves, that, that there was a communication breakdown, that that information wasn't necessarily given to the pilots, but it was accessed nonetheless. That seems to be the only um, way of looking at it that makes sense, but obviously I don't know what happened in those private meetings. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. 
Do you think any of the pilots during the competition on the Australian team, do you think any of them actually gained a tactical advantage? I really couldn't say. Um, I really don't know. Mm -hmm. but, but in the end, they acknowledged that this live streaming data was accessed and that goes 100% against the rules. That's my belief, yes, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. So and just back to your previous question, sorry, if I can just go back to your previous question, I guess the IGC believe that having access to the live data does give a tactical advantage mm -hmm. because that's why the IGC have the 15-minute delay. Right, right. Now, Mandy, the, the, the team seems to think there weren't any rules broken. From your point of view, what's the actual rule that was broken? Okay, so, um, I mean, there's an overarching rule in the FAI rules that says you must be a sportsmanlike person. That's not a specific rule, but there's an overarching sportsmanlike behavior rule. Mm -hmm. But the specific rule that I believe that they, they should be looking at is, is in the annex. And I, may I read that to yeah, you now? Yeah. Um, so it's 3.1.1. Um, the team, captain, competitors, and crew members agree to be bound by these rules. And this is Annex A, which is the Bible for the competition and the local procedures. And the local procedures is where it said about the 15-minute delay, um, which are issued for this competition and also by any rulings and requirements stated by the organizers at any briefing. And of that's course, where you come in, because you said right. at the meeting, you said live tracking will not be used. Exactly. And it happened at the team captain's briefing before the competition started. And it actually happened subsequently at a couple of other briefings because the, the team captains are quite <laughs> quite keen to get access to it. And so it wasn't just a single occasion. But, right. yeah, that, that I think is, to me, that's pretty clear. But, um, yeah. Hmm. This is all so sad, you know. It's such a shame. I just feel so emotional about the whole thing. It's just such a sad series of events. It's just awful for everybody. Right. So when this was discovered, what was the fallout? That, that day there was a penalty? Uh... Yeah, look, we were just flabbergasted. We just couldn't believe it. It was just unbelievable. It was just so shocking. It was just such an unprecedented thing. We, we were absolutely all of us in complete shock. It mm -hmm. was just, we didn't know what to do. We, um, I mean, that had gave, to be very stressful for you as well as a contest director to have to deal with something like this. I, I, the consequences were huge. Yeah, look, I think the biggest emotion was disappointment. When you when you put yourself out there as a volunteer, there's almost a sort of unwritten contract, isn't there? Look, I'll do this for you, but I expect you to behave properly. Mm -hmm. It's almost a, a deal that you do when you agree to give up two years of planning and um, trying to get things right and make things as good as you possibly can. And when you 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 know you spend eight weeks away from home running the competition and the mm -hmm. previous competition, there's it's almost an unwritten contract, isn't there? You know, I'll do the right thing, but I want you to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was disappointment that that had been that had been breached. I think that was the the strongest emotion. Now, after the contest, the the German and, and British teams appealed to the FAI to the tribunal, I suppose, and and as a consequence, wound up having all of the results of the Australian. Essentially, the Australian team was disqualified. Did were you happy enough with the point penalties that they received, or or how, how, uh, how do you yeah, feel about look, it now? I mean, it, it was a it was a fine line that I had to walk as the contest director. I I was um, 
thinking that if I could give them a small point penalty mm-hmm. on the advice of the, the steward, that that would prevent them from being disqualified because obviously disqualification was in the air. Mm-hmm. And I felt that if I gave them a small point penalty, that would be the end of the matter and at least they would retain you know, some points and some status in the competition. But actually it was the Australians that um, initiated the appeal. And then the, there was a counter-appeal from the Germans and the British. Right, right. But in, in the end now, the, the, the larger appeal against the decision where the Australian team was essentially um, disqualified, the, the appeal lodged against that wasn't even heard, so there was no appeal, and the, the decision now stands to this day. Yeah, and that's really disappointing. I think it would have been better for all of us. We would have all got much better closure mm-hmm. if there had been that final. I mean, although it would have been agony, <laughs> but it would have been awful. But it would have been better, I think, for all of us if that appeal had been heard. Mm-hmm. So we could have had a final decision and, and get some closure, which I think is what we're all looking for. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you listened to the interview I, I did with Jenny Thompson, who seems like a very you know lovely woman. Um, but she truly believes that they didn't cheat. And why, why do you think they're so passionate about their innocence? Well, I think they, they either didn't have all the information or they didn't believe all of the information. That's the only conclusion I can come to because they're smart people. Mm-hmm. And if they had known what we talked about at the team captain's meeting, I can't believe that they would have gone forward and done what they did. Mm-hmm. If the team captain had gone back and said, look, we've got a problem. Um, they've just ruled that access to live tracking is not allowed. They would have gone, well, okay, throw it out. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they would have done that. You know, c- can it be argued in any way that this is a case of how one interprets rules? Is, is there a plausible explanation that doesn't involve actual cheating? So the, the penalty was actually for unsporting behavior, mm-hmm. um, which is a little, little softer. Um, but I don't think so. I mean, they've been um, the incident has been looked at three different times. So it's looked at at the competition uh, by the organisers. It was looked at at the competition by the jury. Mm-hmm. It was then looked at on appeal. Three different times people have looked at it, and the conclusion each time has been the same. Mm-hmm. So I think that speaks for itself. You know, I as a person on the other side of the world who's who's been interested in this story, I, f- I find it a very sad story. Tell me about the impact on the sport in Australia and, and women glider pilots in particular. I mean, I, I know there's not an Australian team at this year's World uh, Women's Gliding Championships in the UK. Yeah, look, I absolutely agree. There are no winners in this circumstance. It's just everyone loses. And I think, as I said earlier, the biggest disappointment for me is that I was hoping to present Australia as a friendly country, as a great destination. Um, we even had a <laughs> we had kangaroos on the runway in the evening. You know, we had a koala in the tree by the place where we had dinner. And that was the memory I wanted the pilots to go home Mm with. I've been to a lot of overseas competitions and it's really difficult when you don't have your your things with you. You know, even things like a pair of scissors can be really quite a problem. Um, And I wanted to help the pilots. I'd been in that circumstance myself and it's, it's a big ask to get them all to come to Australia for a competition. So I wanted to make it as easy as possible for it to be a friendly competition. And that was sort of taken away from me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do hope in time that the pilots, the other pilots, will, will have fond memories of Australia, but um, it's always going to be tainted now. And so I guess that was taken from me, and I, I'm still sort of grieving that, if you like. Um, so, so this, I mean, I'm, it really heard, is such a shame. We heard Jenny talking about the experience, how it left her and some of the other pilots. I imagine this has cost you a fair amount of stress as well. 
Yeah, there's been a lot of sleepless nights and some some really um, strong friendships that are broken. It's it's not been good. Mm. Mm. As as a contest director and with hindsight, is there anything you would have done differently? That's a good question. I really don't think so. I mean, we we addressed the issue. We felt the issue had been put to bed, and, and as I say, at the time, the whole focus was on this smoke because it was such a big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, people were telling me I needed to move the competition. People were telling me we would not get any flying days. Um, we even cancelled one day because of the smoke, even though it's perfectly flyable. So, no, I've looked back at all of my notes, all of the briefings. To me, it was clear. We'd, we'd made a determination, which counts, as you know, as a rule. Um, mm-hmm. And we'd said that access to the live tracking wasn't available. I mean, the thing that would have made a difference is if any of the team had come to me and said, look, this is what we plan to do. Is it okay? If right. Any of them had done that, we would not be having this conversation. Mm. Mandy, finally, some of the Australian team members will be listening to this interview. Is is there anything you'd like to say to them? Goodness me. Um, I forgive you. I know that you thought you were doing the right thing. Mm. Sorry. No, no, it's, it's, it's tough, right? There's, it's, it's tough on everybody, this thing. Just give me a minute. Yeah. I say I forgive you, and I do believe that you honestly thought that you were all doing the right thing, and it's so unfortunate that you didn't know or or fully understand um, the outcome of that first team captain's meeting. Hmm. And I just wish that, that one of you had come to me and said, look, this is what we're planning to do. Is it okay? And then we would not be having this conversation. Mandy, thank you for, for telling us from your point of view what happened back in uh, 2019 at the championships. I, I sincerely hope that this can be put behind everybody and that uh, Australia does field a team in the future and that uh, you know the, the wounds over this get healed. So um, best of luck. Okay, thank you very much for your time. All right, take care. Good night. Good night. Mandy Temple was the contest director of the 2019 Women's World Gladian Championships that were held at Lake Keepit, Australia. What do most of the record-breaking pilots you hear on the thermal have in common? Almost all of them use SkySight, the fabulous weather app designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more about how this weather app works, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number 7. For listeners of the thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying, or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters, and you'll get a 14-day free trial. Eve Gerster likes to dream big. For a number of years, he's dreamed of gliding from Switzerland to the United Kingdom. Earlier this spring, he made the flight in his turbo-equipped JS-1 glider. It didn't go exactly as planned, but it was a remarkable flight nonetheless. I've reached Eve at his home in Bern, Switzerland. Hello, Eve. Sounds like an epic journey that was a lot of fun. How did you come up with the idea in the first place? Uh, I had the idea for a couple of years, um, looking at the map, and I just thought, what's the furthest you can go? And crossing the channel and coming to England was uh, actually a 
dream that I had for quite a while. <laughs> and you've now finally been able to uh, conclude that dream. Yeah, almost. So the, the initial idea was to fly there and use the engine over the sea. Mm -hmm. But then I thought it should be possible without using the engine to cross the channel. And due to uh, weather changes, I still uh, were obliged to use it for a short time. Right. Um, so I'm there about 80% and I hope one day to complete it without the engine. So before we get into the story of the flight, talk to me about the aircraft you're flying. So this is a JS-1C, 21 meters, our Yonker sailplane, mm -hmm. plane that's produced in South Africa. It's an open-class glider um, with an excellent performance, uh, which is what you want to have to uh, do some crossings if it comes to that. 21 meters is pretty nice, and this one has the, the turbo, the jet engine in it? It has a jet engine in it, exactly. Yeah. Nice, nice glider. Wish I could fly one of those. Ah, uh, you can. There is a couple of those in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the the actual adventure. Where did you start, and how far did you make it in the first day? So I I started in Kurtlari in Switzerland. This is in the northern part of Switzerland, and the plan was to fly from Switzerland in one flight through Lasham, mm -hmm. which is the, the biggest gliding center in the UK or the main gliding spot. Right, southwest and of London. Exactly, yeah. Uh, which which makes the journey a bit more tricky because you don't only have to cross the channel, you have to fly a bit further there. But I thought well, if you do it, uh, then I want to fly there. Mm -hmm. And so I did make it to Lasham in that first attempt. Although, as mentioned earlier, I had to quickly use the uh, jet engine being over the uh, over the water right but so you you left switzerland early in the morning i guess and what were the conditions like as you worked your way across the, the northern part of france towards the channel um yeah i, I left quite early uh, and i tried to be in uh, just at the right spot when the thermal start which mm -hmm. worked quite nicely uh, at the beginning it was extremely weak so i found myself often 200 meters above ground which is roughly 600 feet i guess yeah um a couple of times quite close to uh, either outlanding or starting the engine mm -hmm. so uh, um then it improved a bit but i have to say it was it was a bit of a struggle the whole day it was never like those booming conditions that i was expecting so you 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 crossed north of paris i guess you sort of took a diagonal uh Northwest route. So I crossed um, east of Paris, mm -hmm. uh, which is so the straight line between uh, Switzerland and, and London goes across the border from France and Belgium mm -hmm. um, to to Dover. So Calais is in France, and then you go off the street of Dover, and uh, uh, that's that's where I was heading for. So the the most narrow section. So you, you crossed into Belgium or still the, the French part? I, I stayed within, within France, okay. um, just also for simplicity, and it, it is the most direct route. I was considering uh, routes through Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, mm -hmm. but at the end, I tried to have the most simple way, which is, uh, which is purely through France. Okay, so you're looking at this body of water, even though it's the narrowest part of the crossing, it's still 
a considerable chunk of water. Did you, did you climb up and glide across or did you have to use the engine all the way? What happened? Yeah, so um, about one hour before I arrived at this at the section with the, with the water, the, I, I got a message from my meteorologist saying that the conditions are deteriorating and that there may be a bit of problems doing the crossing. Mm-hmm. Um, I still decided to fly towards the the sea just to see what's happening, and then I was able to climb at the beach in France about. Uh, 800 to 900 meters above ground. Now you have to do the conversion yeah, yourself yeah. to feet. Um, so just under 3,000 feet, yeah? Yeah, exactly. And then I, I saw some nice cumulus on the other side at Dover just forming, and they looked like they were just before the uh, just before the mainland. So I gave myself like an 80% chance to actually connect somewhere at the, at the coast of Dover without the engine. Mm-hmm. But the risk is quite high, and I didn't want to take the risk of uh, having to do a water landing. No. So I, I used my, my altitude. And, and then, since my project was to fly there without the engine, I was not sure if I, if I should just turn back. And then I decided, since I've already flown uh, almost five, 500 kilometers uh, to this place, or 600, that I may as well cross it and see what's happening on the other side. Yeah. Um, I did so I started to glide into the water so I did I think about five to six kilometers over the um, over the sea and then took out the engine that I would still have uh, a safe glide back to mainland in France and the engine started and then I uh, run it for a couple of minutes only to to give myself another maybe 300 meters 400 mm-hmm. meters uh, which was enough then to uh, to safely connect to the mainland to the to the land in the UK, mm-hmm. and and they're actually. I mean, I'm going to interrupt for a second. I mean, that was the smart thing to do. I mean, we're we're all doing this for fun, and this was a great adventure. But it's it's not about risking our lives to to accomplish a, an interesting task. But it's you know it's just not worth it. I I agree. So um, I was just obviously a bit disappointed because I've been planning this thing for a long time, and. So, but I, I wasn't. I'm still not willing to take any risk yeah. to do any water landing or. I'm but other flying. other pilots would push it further. So, uh, you know, good for you that you still do this adventure and you did it safely. Yeah, I, I, I never want to have myself at a point where I can't safely outland, even though having the engine. Yeah. Um. So that's yeah. That, that was was uh, I was I didn't consider to do it without the engine. I just considered either turning back or using the engine once being over the water. So you got the extra um, 300 was, meters, and, and that put you over yeah. Dover? Yeah, um, that put me in on the on the good glide just a bit to the uh, west of Dover, and there really the, the, the sun was hitting the ground, and I found thermos immediately Nice going there. And apparently they had like bad weather the whole day in England. They had high cirrus, so nobody was really flying there. And I, But I didn't know that, so I just... Uh, Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, so I just started going uh, westward, so I had still about 120 kilometers to cover. Mm-hmm. And I, I found some climbs, and at one stage I found the ridge, which was nicely working, uh, which gave me another, I think, 40 to 50 kilometers. And then I, then the sun stopped, and it became really dark, and there was like no sun left on the ground. But for some reason, I still don't know, I I've, there was like two thermals, 
bring me to cloud base to almost, I think, thousand, a bit over thousand meters, which actually gave me the final glide into Lasham. Nice, nice. Must have been a big relief landing. Yeah, that was a was an incredible view to to land there and to actually know that I did that. Also, there were some people having followed me on the on the tracker, uh, expecting me there. So it took me about. 20 seconds from, from landing to get the beer and the welcome to England. A nice pint of warm English beer. <laughs> I think it was even cold. Ah, okay. You know, it reminds me, I'm going to actually send you a link. In one of my earlier podcasts, we did a story about, um, it was in the 1950s during the national contest, somebody flew a, a Slingsby Skylark. Uh, no engine, of course, all the way across to France and, and into Germany. Uh, epic flight. Uh, pilot's last name was Goff. But I'll, uh, I'll send you a, a, a link for that. You'd probably like to listen to that. So, yeah. That sounds interesting, yes. So you're, you're in Lashem, but of course, you've got to get home at some point. Talk to me about the return trip. Yeah. So um, taking the decision to do this flight, I knew I would miss the beginning of the competition in Switzerland, the regional competition, which just started the next day. But I still wanted to sort of participate at that competition. So my goal was to fly back the next day to Switzerland. But I also knew the weather conditions were less good mm -hmm. than the day, the day I came, which and, and they were not great when I flew flew there. So I never had like great soaring weather uh, for the for the whole trip, which which is a bit crazy because right. you're supposed to have good weather. The uh, world of gliding. Yeah, but anyway, I I knew I had um, I had a, still a lot of fuel, and I I topped up the fuel in Lasham. So I have forty two liters of fuel, which is already bringing me a bit of a distance. Mm -hmm. And then in in the morning at Lasham, there um. There, there was Andy who approached me and off and offered me actually to to give give me an aerotow close to the close to Dover that I could directly reach the mainland in France, which is a incredibly generous and nice thing to do, which increased my chances to make it home uh, on the next day actually. So then that's what I did. I I did one mistake um, planning the trip in in the in England. I did not realize I was in a different time zone and i was like one hour um Later. one hour back so, yeah. yeah so i i took off one I, I knew the time i wanted to be in france and i only realized like one one half an hour previous to my departure in at Lasham that i was already too late because i didn't uh, realize though this time difference and my mobile phone changed automatically um anyway it's always a fun thing to to change time zones within the glider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so... So you, yeah, so you, got, the, you got the aerotoad near Dover. Exactly. And then what happened? And, and then I, I... So this also gave me the glide into France. Um, I think it was about the 30 to 40 kilometers, again, over the water, over the sea, with a very bad visibility, which is interesting. So at some stage, you can't see any mainland around you. You can't see the sea. You can't see anything. Yeah, that's disconcerting. Um, but... I, I, I trust my computer and he told me I would have a safe march into yeah. to the other side, which which I did. Um, then it was a bit marginal, so I had to use uh, maybe one or two liters of the fuel just to connect to the terminals within France. Mm -hmm. It was 
completely blue for most of the time. And there's also some airspace, so you, I couldn't always like fly the, the easiest route because right. I had to go around some of the airspaces. Um, but as eventually I managed to get much further than I expected. So I I've, I've thought maybe some of my friends have to retrieve me through the, uh, the half of France. But I managed to get four to 500 kilometers in gliding in blue and very bad conditions. And then when the when it completely stopped in the evening, I took out the jet uh, I, and I fired it up, just climbed as high as possible and started final glide towards my, my, my home airfield. And I, it, the interesting thing is I was only about two liters short. So my home airfield is behind some hills. So I would have had final glide into this home airfield. But the jet stopped just a bit too short. Um, and I, I completely used all the fuel in, in, in the glider and landed nine kilometers in front my home airfield but <laughs> also in switzerland so that's that's the interesting thing so i never touched ground in france so i did the out switzerland to lasham directly and then also came back into switzerland from and then your friends came to which, pick you up and they came i already notified them when i was in the glider so it took them about 15 minutes to get there i barely had time to uh, like took off the tape of the glider well, look, it's still an excellent adventure. What, what, uh, what will be your lasting memory of this uh, trip? And there's going to be many memories. I, I think mainly the, the arrival in, in England, actually suddenly seeing double-decker buses and <laughs> people driving on the left side, which is, I, I've never flew in England, so that, that was quite incredible to see that. Luckily, you didn't uh, have to fly on the left, right? <laughs> Yeah, that that was helpful. I, I I started circling to the left a bit just to make sure I adapted correctly. Um, so th that was very interesting. And then uh, the the very nice and accommodating people at Lasham and at Lasham Gliding Center, they were all very helpful and helped and were very excited about this project. Yeah. And I, since I was a bit disappointed that I had to use the engine going going up, I thought, oh, that's not a like that that wouldn't be a big deal to them, but it was. And I uh, just a bit later, I realized that it was quite a nice adventure altogether. Absolutely, and and congratulations on on a on a great trip. And that's what gliding's about. It's having the adventure, meeting people. So so congratulations. That was a, a good trip. <laughs> Thank you, Eva. A pleasure speaking with you, and uh, safe flying for the rest of the summer. And uh, maybe we'll chat again at some point. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And good flights to you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Eve Gerster spoke to me from Bern, Switzerland. Pop onto the WeGlide website and you can see the details of his flight. The Thermal Podcast is proud to support the Made in Canada automated task scoring platform, Proving Grounds. Developed by a team from the QNIM Gliding Club in Alberta, it's designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into true cross-country soaring pilots. And it really works. Proving Grounds has proven hugely successful and is now in use in Canada, Europe, the United States, and New Zealand. Check out episode number 15 of The Thermal, where I interviewed co-founder Patrick McMahon. For more information, go to their website, which is SoaringTasks.com. That's SoaringTasks.com.
contest flying high-performance single-seaters is without doubt an exhilarating and challenging endeavor. But just as much fun and possibly more challenging is contest flying two-seat gliders. Sandy Loind will be doing just that at this summer's United Kingdom two-seat contest. Hello Sandy, welcome to the Thermal. Hi there, thank you for having us on. Now, I love two-seaters. I own an old World War II vintage two-seater, but uh, I haven't flown it, flown it competitively, although it used to be flown competitively. Tell me about this two-seat competition. It, it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it is, and that 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 uh, is at the heart of of the purpose of it. Really, it was it's, this year will be the thirty sixth running of it, and when it was originally set up, it was very much to be fun, social, and also to to bring um, kind of new and and early years sort of cross country pilots into it. Um, obviously, the joy of having two seats is you can take someone who's maybe only kind of recently done their bronze or whatnot, and take them into cross-country and competitions so that their first experience isn't isn't in a single-seater somewhere. Right, right. Good way to, to get some some knowledge of flying competitions. So, now, how many competitors do you have this year? Uh, at the minute, there's about 17 or 18 signed up. Obviously, it's, we've still got a couple of months to go, but there's usually around about 30 gliders flying. Yeah, that's not bad at all. And, and what, will, uh, what will you be flying? Uh, so I've, I'm in a syndicate with one of the club's ASK21s. Um, we've got three 21s and a Percats within the club, and usually we, we get at least the 21s, if not all of them, out into the competition. You know, on a good day, a 21 is fine. There's, there's uh, you know, you can you can do a 300 in that. Yeah, definitely. They're a, um, they're a nice kind of forgiving glider, but they've, they've definitely got the ability to go a good distance on in the right weather. So what what other uh, types of gliders do you have in this comp? Uh, take your pick, really. Everything from eagles right the way through to caps. Well, sorry, through capstans. Uh, we've got a class for wood gliders. Um, so we've got a few of those that come up quite quite uh, most years, and then right the way up to and including your geodiscuses and DG thousands and the likes with with virtually everything you can imagine in between. Huh. Now, you mentioned a capstan. I'm trying to vaguely remember. Is that a side-by-side -side plane that looks like a bit of a guppy? Yes, yeah. Kind of quite wide-bodied, obviously. But, uh, yeah, side-by-side. -side, um, but the, the, the people who fly it generally do pretty well in it. So huh. it, it obviously still works. And it'll be heavily handicapped. I mean, that's a 40-, 50-year-old glider. I would say it's probably even older than that, but yeah, the uh, the handicapping comes into its own for the way the club. I'm not entirely sure how it works, but they work uh, their own handicap system based around the BGA handicaps, and it yeah, any any glider can win on a day, um, mm -hmm. partly because of the way the competition runs. But it, yeah, like I said, they they do well. So Sandy, tell me about the tasks. How how are they assigned? How are they set up? So you'll get. Um, the normal kind of let's say five five uh, sort of turn points on the task, but they work in such a way that any crew can take any kind of length of task out of it. So you could just go an out and return from the first to the first turn point. For example, if you've got quite a a, a slow glider, if you've got one of the, the 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 faster kind of more modern gliders, you could choose to go around all five, but. Part of the art of it is knowing when to cut and run for home. Sometimes the winner isn't the person who goes the furthest. It's the person who does the first three turn points and cuts back. So you don't have to pre-declare your task. It's very much up to you to make the decisions on, on the go. And, and like I say, part of the art of the competition is knowing when to, when to stop and head for home. 
that, that makes it a, a bit more interesting as well and, and, and gives other people in the lower performance aircraft a, a chance at um, making the podium, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's kind of part of the way. Like I said earlier, that that any any glider can win on the day. It's it's a little bit about making that decision at the right time, and and giving everyone an opportunity. Now, what makes this so much fun for you? I mean, I imagine you've flown other competitions. Actually, I've not. I'm uh, relatively new to the sport. I've, I've flown for about five or six years now through, but obviously COVID's got in the way of that. Yeah. Um, and for one reason or another, I've not got into competition flying other than doing the two-seat comp last year. And, and de- yeah, definitely it's it's on the list to do more of it when I can get the time. Right. Good. But it's, uh, it's the sociable side of it as much as anything. The fact you actually share the cockpit with someone and you discuss and, and, and kind of consider your options before you go, you've, you've got the chance to learn from someone as well as, as well as kind of fly your own, your own sort of race, so to speak. Now tell me about the competition site and the kind of conditions that competitors can expect there. So we um we're based at Pocklington Airfield, which is an old uh, World War II bomber base. Uh, it's just in the Vale of York, so to the to the east of the city of York. We've got just off of our eastern side the town of Pocklington, which which is at the seat at, at the foot of the the walls, which rise up about a thousand feet. Yeah, it's and beautiful then, up there. Oh, it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely stunning. Um, and then off to the west, obviously, it's the Vale of York and heading up to some of the old uh, RAF bases at Linton and Ouse and, and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It's generally thermic, um, thermal flying. You can get some ridge lift off of the edge of the, the walls, but it's not. you're not going to get particularly high with that until you get further up north towards the, the Yorkshire Gliding Club at Sutton Bank. Um, and occasionally, we can access wave as well. I've flown out of Sutton Bank. That's where you tow off the edge of the uh, the end of the runway into the valley. Yeah, you magically get 800 feet of height underneath yeah. you. That's <laughs> yeah, stunning it's, up there. It is. It's it's lovely up there. Yeah, um, we're we're much more of a flatland site than that, but it's only about 40 kilometers away, so quite a, a, a common day out for us just on sort of local soaring, so to mm-hmm. speak, is to head up that way and occasionally can access the ridge and the and the wave and stuff, but. But yeah, it's um, like I say, for us, it's mostly thermals and occasionally we can access the wave and you can get to about 10, 11,000 feet if, if, if you get it on a good day um, where we are. Now, I, I imagine landouts during a contest like this require a bit more than just one person driving the, uh, the, the recovery vehicle and trailer because of the, you know, <clears throat> some of these gliders are big, heavy pigs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're fortunate in here that we're, well, East Yorkshire has got a huge number of disused airfields um, and, and whatnot that are still landable. And then if you cross over the Humber into Lincolnshire, it's it's Bomber County. So quite often you can find either a, a friendly gliding club or airfield to land at, and mm. then it's just a, a simple aerator retrieve. But yeah, if you do choose to put it down in a field, um, your, recruit, your retrieve crew is probably four or five people instead of two or yeah. three. But yeah, I would think. <laughs> and hopefully but, you don't have to buy them all dinner and beers afterwards. I was just going to say, you've just got to make sure you do it close to a decent pub if you're going to do <laughs> that. So, <laughs> Hey, now you, you mentioned this has been going on for 36 years. And yep. uh, what are there other competitions, two-seat competitions in Europe? Are there others? Uh, I'm not aware of any kind of on on a club level like this. There's obviously the big open sort of championships for for serious right, competition, right. but this is very much a kind of it's 
club club comp- competition and and for bringing the next generation of pilots on and stuff so the the ethos is a bit different but mm. there are around europe other opportunities for two-seat flying but not with quite the same sort of um social aspect to it maybe well it, it sounds like a lot of fun i sure hope the, the weather cooperates for you guys and uh, it's the sort of idea that you know can easily be translated to to other gliding countries with a lot of two-seaters Absolutely, it's a, a format that can go anywhere, and and then with the the way the race uh, the races tasks are structured as well, you can you can make it work to your own locality quite simply. I would have thought as well. Yeah. Sandy, um, have fun this summer. Fly safe, and uh, we'll talk again. Take care. Great. Thank you very much. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Sandy Lloyd will be competing at this summer's UK two seater contest. That's it for episode number 34 of The Thermal. I'm taking the summer off as I move to Western Canada and more gliding adventures in the mountains of BC and Alberta. I'll be back with more episodes in the fall. I can be reached at thethermalpodcast at gmail.com. That's thethermalpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering The Thermal. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.